I apologize that my audio was the absolute worst in this recording. This was my first remotely recorded podcast, and I didn't know that my headphone microphone sounded that bad. We're all learning. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Bard. I'm your host, Sarah. You may have noticed a distinct lack of a cold open. That is because this episode is very long, and my fluff was deemed unnecessary. By me. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Lisa Grogan, a clinical psychologist and close friend. I am also joined by Sarah Clark with the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. She was cast to play Hamlet in a production that was canceled as of our recording. However, since recording, they have announced that Hamlet will kick off their 2021 season in August. I, for one, am pumped. Please enjoy as I discuss Hamlet and grief with these two intelligent women. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Sarah Clark. Uh, I'm with the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. Um, I am currently in my 14th season there. Um, and I started as a uh, as an actor, and then after that, I just kind of kept collecting jobs. So I've been an actor and a director, uh, a teaching artist with the organization. I has also been working in the uh, the development department, um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I was uh, I slated to play a Hamlet um, uh, right now, basically. Uh, tomorrow would have been our opening night, April 10th. Oh. I know, if you can believe that. Um, uh, but that, of course, you know, we were three days into rehearsal uh, when the, um, the governor's uh, order came out about the ban on mass gatherings over 100. And so it, uh, it pretty quickly shuttered our doors um, and we had to close the production. I, but we, we'd been three days in, which, um, you know, when you're staging a show means that we'd gotten through a couple of days of uh, what we call table work, the stage management team and all of the actors reading the play and talking about it. Yeah. And then um, it's interesting, you know, that, that our topic is grief tonight because we'd, uh, um, you know, so because I work in the administrative part of the company, I, I knew that we were going to have to close the show sort of before everybody else did. And it happened, you know, in, uh, in the afternoon, I went in for rehearsal that morning. It was our first day of blocking, which is like standing up and actually starting to, to kind of walk through the show and figure out what you're going to do. And, uh, and we got into act one, scene two, and uh, I literally got through uh, blocking, oh, that this tutu solid flesh would melt. And they called a break. And after the break, they pulled everybody in and they posted the closing notice on the show. So, it's, uh, um, you know, we had our own kind of experience with uh, the, the grief of that loss. And the nice thing about it is, you know, that the company, um, nobody wanted to see the show close uh, and, not, and not have an opportunity to, to be realized. Um, but the production, uh, so, you know, I, I, think, I think you will have an opportunity to, to see it in the future. Um, the production Ooh, itself, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it, it was originally kind of conceived as part of our um, uh, season of the woman, uh, which we started back in July. And this was us uh, collaborating with a lot of different arts organizations all over town. Um, There's a big funder in town called ArtsWave, which is kind of the united way for arts organizations. Um, and they'd launched this big initiative called the Power of Her, uh, which was commemorating, um, you know, over 2019 and 2020, the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment. So lots of very female forward, female centric programming, female playwrights, uh, things like that. And uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, our producing artistic director, Brian, had told me four or five years ago that the next time uh, we do Hamlet, you know, he wanted um, he wanted to see a female Hamlet. He wanted to do a contemporary production and really sort of um, bring into uh, relief the, the element of the play that is a little bit more political, which is what happens when you have a woman who is essentially usurped in her um, 
uh, you know, out of her role. You know, she's she's the presumed heir. Um, but uh, but of course, there's a lot more to the, the character than that. And it was mostly just um, a good opportunity to put those words and and this this character into the mouth of a, of a woman. You know, it's it's sort of held up as this um, like the apotheosis of the human experience. <laughs> you know, this yeah. play, and and it is. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, it, it absolutely um, is, but. You know, in Shakespeare's time, they're they're all men and boys, and so out of pure logistical necessity, there aren't a lot of roles for women. And so, what is held up as kind of this universal human experience is still so often really only voiced by a man. And so, it's it's nice to get the opportunity to um, hear it in a different way. Absolutely. So the play was going to be in a like contemporary setting. Yeah, yeah, the idea was kind of doing it doing it right now. And you know, with Shakespeare plays, like you you're always trying not to be too literal about any one thing, even um, you know, even when you're setting something very specifically, uh, only because I mean, you know, you're you're a Shakespeare scholar, right? They're they're rife with anachronism and inconsistencies. I mean, if you try to like figure out a timeline in Shakespeare, like forget about it. You're just going to drive yourself crazy. So, you know, the um it, it was it was meant to be now, but uh, you know they didn't set it in an office building or anything like that. Oh well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now that's always one of my funniest things with Shakespeare. You know, I my kind of like pet side thing is the whole debate over whether or not William Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, <laughs> because everybody's like, oh, he's so amazing, it's such a genius. There's no way this guy from nowhere wrote it, and I'm like when you really get down into it, <laughs> he's an amazing writer. He was amazing at characters and so many of his plots. I'm like, what is, what? Oh, oh yeah, no, I mean, the man couldn't turn a plot to save his life, you know, all them, <laughs> almost all of them are borrowed, right? It's, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, this is a this is a man who is almost a savant in this particular way, right? Because it's the the, yeah. um, the poetry and the ideas, and especially you know when you get into the the more mature plays where he really starts breaking the rules. You know, it's no longer he's no longer really strict about the meter and the rhyme and the you know yeah. the exact structure and, and the unities and all of that. He starts kind of playing fast and loose, but then he you know plays fast and loose with a lot of things. <laughs> you just like I know. Really? okay. <laughs> And he was he was much better at sort of like zeroing in on the essential human truths part and less about exactly. like names and dates and geography and time the way time works. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Maybe he was I getting a pandemic. <laughs> well, well, yeah. And you know, I'll tell you what. We've I'm been thinking about that a lot these days. The idea of a Shakespeare company trying to survive through a plague and, yeah. and yeah. thinking about them. Well, while we're on that topic, then, I guess I want to answer a question I thought of later of, during this crazy time, what's a way that we can help support our local theaters? Um, so oh. Since Shakespeare Company or Well, as somebody who works in development, that's, that's <laughs> easy for me to answer. <laughs> So there are a lot of ways, um, and this isn't just specific to us. I mean, of course, I want you to, to get online and, and support Cincinnati Shakespeare Company, but this is for any arts organization that, that you support locally or regionally or, or nationally. Um, one is, uh, you know, when we can't get people together in a room, we can't do the main thing that we do, which is produce shows, you know, um, create spaces where people can come together in large groups and have a common experience. Um, and so without that, it means that, you know, the, the expectations for our ticket sales have, uh, you know, dropped dramatically. Um, 
So one thing that you can do is if you'd already purchased tickets to a show that got canceled, uh, if you can find it in your heart to choose to donate those tickets back, basically ask the theater to convert them into a donation uh, instead of asking for a refund. That's a big, big help because if you think about it, it's not just the loss of revenue we were expecting to come in, but also the exposure that we have for all of this stuff we sold that we can't fulfill anymore because the show literally doesn't exist. So that's one thing. Um, two is, uh, you know, almost always theaters have memberships or subscriptions and you can purchase one for the next season. Um, sometimes they'll even let you sort of, like if you currently have one, you can donate uh, the part of your subscription that is unused back to the theater and you can get like a tax benefit for that, which is great. Um, but you know, anything that is cash in the door now. So if you think about eventually when the theaters reopen, I'll be able to use this, but you know what, I'm going to give them the value of my subscription now, purchase it for next season, that really helps out. Um, most theaters also do gift certificates, so if you don't want to do a full subscription and you just want to do, like, I want to make sure that I can see a couple of shows sometime next year, you can usually um, call the theater or go online and do that. And then, of course, you can actually donate. So we set up a very specific fund uh, that's just called our COVID-19 Closure Fund. You can access it on our website. And honestly, the average gift is $50. We have I think today 350 donors uh, to that fund which is fantastic um, and you know if you can make a big gift if you have that capacity that's wonderful but even if you can do something small um, that really helps kind of show your support and your solidarity for the arts. Awesome because I think a lot of people want to help right now but it's just yeah. hard to know exactly how. Getting back to Hamlet specifically the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company's production so did the shift from a father-son relationship to a father-daughter relationship, did that affect how you read the character and portrayed the character? And if so, how? You know, it's interesting that you ask that. Um, and, and some of this is kind of hard to answer because you have to think about the idea that, um, you know, it, actors, good actors, <laughs> um, you know, they come to the first read uh, prepared, meaning you know, especially with Shakespeare, like you've gone through the script, you've probably learned a solid portion of your lines. You make sure that you understand everything that you're saying. You've looked anything up that you don't get. You, you've kind of done the homework. But a lot of, um, a lot of the answers to questions like that are are really like inextricably tied to your scene partners. They're tied to your other actors, you know, because 15 actors can be at home, you know, formulating all of them. Well, I think the relationship is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you get in the room with your Ophelia or your ghost dad or your Gertrude and go, oh, that's not what you were thinking at all. Okay, let's talk about that. And that's sort of the stage that we were at. We had just started to do at least that kind of let's talk about it intellectually part, but then you do three to four weeks of rehearsals and inevitably you find things, you try things through that process and you go, oh, that's amazing. I never would have like been able to discover that if I'd just kind of been thinking about it. Um, but sort of there's something about like, you know, bodies and breath in space and people reacting to each other and reacting to their own impulses and what, you know, is being given by their scene partner. So with that kind of big caveat aside, uh, yeah, Barry Mulholland, who was slated to play both Claudius and uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father, uh, he and I talked about this a lot. And even in just kind of the, um, the initial reads of it, I think we started to find something pretty powerful. I know that for him, he brought up the idea of um, what the ghost asks Hamlet to do. Uh, in in eventually, I mean, I think we I think we take that for granted. You know, we sort of intellectually understand what a, like a revenge tragedy is. We understand like, okay, this is the arc of the Avenger. This is the hero quest, or you know, what have you. 
But especially in a modern context, like it's hard for us to really wrap our brains around what this father is asking their child to do. And for Barry, the idea of that, of tasking a daughter with that, um, you know, not just a son is, kind of brings a whole other lens to it. And, you know, I remember looking at it and going, okay, so to me, if it's a father and daughter, this is probably one of two things, right? It's either this is a dad who probably wanted a son and probably uh, raised his daughter as if she was going to be a son or expected her to be one, you know? So is it interesting to play the angle of, well, I gotta avenge my dad because I gotta fulfill some expectation that he had of me. I've gotta be the son that he didn't have. Or, and I feel like this is kind of the direction we had started to go, Hamlet idolizes their father, um, his father, her father. I'll, I'll probably kind of go back and forth between pronouns because mm. I That's sort fine. of think of the character in all ways now. They're, they're sort of a yeah. they in my mind. Um, but it, it was going to be a she as I, as I played it, so I, I might say that. Um, you know, idolizes this, uh, this man. And, uh, you know, talking about grief, like who? Um, revenge tragedy aside, just the simple uh, loss of that. You know, I, I feel like Hamlet up until we meet Hamlet um, has led a pretty charmed life. You know, I think one of the big challenges of the character in, from just a pure like, do you like this character enough to follow them and sympathize with them and be sorry that they die at the end, uh, is that you never get to see Hamlet at his best, right? You kind of always see him right after the worst possible thing has yeah. happened to him that has completely turned his world 180 degrees and everything that he thought he knew and everyone that he thought he trusted, he can no longer trust. Um, anyway, I'm, I've, I've kind of rambled away from your original question. Okay. I guess the answer <laughs> is, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it does, I think it does change it when it's a father and daughter, but I don't think you can prescribe specifically what that change is. Like you can't say, well, all fathers and daughters would have this specific relationship in this situation, so that's how we're gonna play it, you know? It, anytime, you know, you're approaching stuff, it's always like, in general, is the enemy of art. You're always trying to zero down and be as specific as possible. And those choices come out of smart people who can intellectualize about it, but also just good actors who can react to each other and sort of find it together. Absolutely, and I, I like that you touched on the fact that like Hamlet idolizes his or her father, yeah. you know, in a sense, because, you know, I, I'll have you chime in here, Lisa, of like, is that pretty common when dealing with grief that like the person who dies becomes like this amazing, perfect person that we idolize and, yeah. you know, yes. the view of them gets skewed. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, the idea of each person reacts differently to grief. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things. Like, so Sarah, I don't know how much the other Sarah told you, but I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, and so, you know, human behavior is my realm. Um, and it's mine too. I just put yeah, it on stage. <laughs> you just put it on stage. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so like, I think acting like does, you know, interests me like not that I would want to do it but just because of the similarities to what I do yeah. um, but I think that's one of the things that many of my clients who are going through grief find so frustrating is they're like well when will I feel better when should I do this when should I do that and I'm like I don't know <laughs> which you never really want to hear your doctor say yeah. Um, yeah. and so there are you know some kind of common themes and things like that and one of them absolutely is that the person who died can become idealized because they're not there to prove you wrong. 
Hmm. And they're not there to let you down. Um, So that definitely can happen. Plus, we've also got this kind of cultural norm of we don't speak ill of the dead. Um, And so even if this person was a terrible person in life, it's like, well, that's that's rude. That's bad. You know, we don't do that. Um, Yeah. And so I do often have um, clients who, for example, um, suffered childhood abuse. And when their abuser dies, they're like, I am glad, like I'm relieved, but I feel guilty that, you know, there's a lot of conflicting emotions there. And they struggle a lot with other family members who try to see the dead person in a more idealized light. And they're like, no, but they really did a lot of damage. Um, So that can become very, very complicated. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. We definitely see people who, you know, the sun shone out of their butt, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, they were a human, so probably not. <laughs> um, you probably know, maybe. maybe, I don't know. I never met them. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, a super interesting way, you know, to play it. And so slightly kind of getting away, I guess, from the idealized, you know, thing. Um, generally, when I'm on Sarah's podcast, my research is watching whichever film version she tells me is best. <laughs> um, so that is how I research for these. Uh, so I've watched the Kenneth Branagh about halfway through David Tennant. Okay. Uh, and like, so it, you know, kind of struck me of like, interestingly kind of some people play hamlet as like he's kind of you know faking the madness essentially in the beginning and like putting on an act about it um and then there's you know this kind of like is he really you know kind of losing it or she you know or Mm -hmm. is it kind of a an act um so i think that was interesting you know and obviously you know without you like you know blocking it out with you know your Mm -hmm. your fellow actors not being sure you know but I was just kind of interested in like, you know, those, the two of you who have a much deeper knowledge of Shakespeare than I do, you know, how do you guys see Hamlet as far as, is he playing this up? Is this, he's really kind of losing it? You know, kind of how do you guys see his arc? For me, because that's a question I've kind of gone back from because of how different actors portray it. And for me, it's like, I mean, Hamlet explicitly says, like, I'm all fake being crazy. Yes. So, like, it for sure starts fake. But I think a little bit of it is, like, also he's getting, to me, maybe possibly some sort of catharsis out of, like, acting just however he really kind of wants to because he's being crazy especially just because of that first scene when you know Hamlet's all sad and depressed like one probably would be after their father died and Claudius is like oh Hamlet everybody's dad dies why are you sad about it and it's like because he died (laughs) anyway I'll be interested to see how how you were approaching this Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree with you. I think um, that's one of those questions that always drives me a little nuts because it implies that you've got to go one way or another, right? That there is like a yes or no answer that, that it falls on a binary. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's yes to both. Like, yeah, like Hamlet says, you know, I will take it upon me to put an antique disposition on, right? And I I completely understand the logic of that, right? It, that, that Hamlet needs to stay in court, needs to stay close to the king, 
um, you know, to be able to kind of uh, seize his opportunity, but also, you know, it has a little bit of misdirection. It makes sense to me because it gives Hamlet plausible deniability, right? So say he's successful in, in killing Claudius um, and, and is basically allowed to plead insanity because he's been acting nuts, you know, since since he came down from the battlement. Um, I also think, and this is a very, you know, Shakespeare-y thing, but Fools are the only people in Shakespeare who are allowed to speak truth to power. And I think that's exactly, you know, when you talk about the catharsis that Hamlet is getting out of putting on this disposition, I think that's exactly it. You know, it allows him to no longer need to be politic, to no longer need to be diplomatic, to basically say whatever the hell he wants to, to however, you know, whoever he wants to, yeah. without a whole lot of, you know, repercussions coming down on him. Um, that said, you know, yes, obviously, Hamlet is not in a great brain space at the moment. Uh, you know, you know the, the, he's feeling all of the all of the grief, all of the betrayal, all of the anger. Um, but you know, if if like you really like put my feet to the fire and made me answer, like, do I think that he's he's out of control of his faculties genuinely at any point i don't really think that he is you know i think that um you know he certainly has extreme emotion you certainly see him act in ways that are not very palatable or likable um you know i i think that i think that that moment at the um at the grave with laertes is a great example right so it's interesting to see how um, Hamlet and, and madness and grief shifts, you know, kind of in acts one through four, and then we go off and have what I affectionately refer to as the pirate adventure, and then he comes back a <laughs> Um, who has literally, you know, he's been dealing with mortality in the abstract for four acts, and now he's actually faced it and survived it. I mean, it's pure dumb luck that he makes it off that pirate ship alive. He really should not have survived yeah. that. And yeah. now having faced that, it's like all of the things that have been inhibiting him and his ability to do this thing, um, you know, for four acts of the play are suddenly lifted. And the, you know, where that shines beautifully is in something like, you know, watching that last bit with Horatio and, and, and seeing that speech about, you know, the, um, the readiness is all and, and kind of like, ooh, Hamlet as Zen and I accept this and I accept that things are out of my control. And I, I think you see the uh, the opposite. You see him completely fly off uh, at Laertes and oh God, how dare you, her brother, you know, d display your grief at her grave. You know, I my grief is 100 times when all we've seen is, is Hamlet behave kind of despicably towards Ophelia, but- Absolutely. Um, and yeah. what I think is funny about that example is like even Hamlet is later like, oh man, that wasn't good. Yes. <laughs> I probably yes, shouldn't I have done that. Key. I really do, because like I get it. Like I think that's that's the part where I don't like that character. You know, in every production that oh, I see, yeah. I'm like, oh come on, dude. Like where do you get off? But working yeah. on it, because the thing about playing a role is that you can't you can't judge a character you play, right? Because everybody, yeah. hero or villain, is the hero of their own story. And even Absolutely. the villains that acknowledge that they're villains, you know, like Aaron in in Titus or Richard III, all of them still yeah, feel okay. just. They all still rationalize their actions, even if they acknowledge that they're despicable. What's interesting is that I think, like, so I agree that I, like, again, I don't have, you know, the depth of, like, you know, the understanding of, like, the Shakespeare, you know, that you guys, but, like, looking at the portrayals, I agree, like, it, it kind of starts off, you know, like, faking it and then moves more into not, but... I read it or at least viewed it a little bit differently, even when he's kind of faking it. Like I get, you know, like the catharsis and that kind of thing. 
but a lot of times when people have gone through a tragedy like they just have less capacity to control their behavior you know and it's it's not like a losing you know it's not like a losing control but it's just like a my give a crap busted and you know so especially like thinking about this as a person who's very hemmed in by very rigid courtly rules like he just does not have the brain capacity to care (laughs) you know like he just doesn't and so I think that's you know like for me that's more of how it starts is kind of that like you know oh I can kind of get away with it and then also looking at it from that the Shakespeare like device of you know fools are the ones who can speak truth to power and so looking at it from a you know that's how Shakespeare wrote it but also thinking about it you know if this were a human living through it what would be motivating that you know and this idea of you know people who you know go through a tragedy and then either they have so much emotion that it's coming out in ways they don't like you know they're potentially getting into fights you know they're arguing with people you know but some of it is just this irritability that it's like i don't have the capacity to fix my face i don't have the capacity to keep my trap shut when i really should Well, and, and as Sarah was talking about, like, oh, I can say what I want to whoever I want. All I could think of Lisa was, as Lisa was watching these different productions, she just kept texting me, like, oh, my God, I hate Bolivia. Like, he is just <laughs> so annoying. And I'm like, Hamlet might think so, too. And now he can be like, you're just the worst. <laughs> like, and just mock it endlessly. Whereas he was such a high court official, Hamlet, the prince, couldn't really be like, you're so stupid, like, you know? And now he kind of has the chance to openly mock Polonius. And, every, and Polonius is just like, oh, Hamlet really is crazy. And I'm like, oh, Polonius. I love, though, um, Lisa, what you were saying about the idea that he just, <laughs> um, people who are going through a thing, they're just more unpredictable. They're, you know, they're, they're, um, their motivations are just different. You know, they don't always abide by what we think would be logical and rational and and I think that's key you know when you're when you're playing Hamlet when you're playing any role like I can intellectually keep in my brain that oh yes the fool is a Shakespearean device or the revenge tragedy has a certain arc or but but I can't actually actively play that right all I can actually play is an action I'm trying to to do a thing to a person I think that's why like I you know, I wanted to make sure that I kind of watched, you know, as much of both, you know, versions as I could, because obviously there is so much that Shakespeare gives as far as like the words and, you know, how you can do that. But there's so much beyond that, you know, that is interesting in, you know, watching it and like those, you know, the inflections and that kind of thing. And so particularly the one scene that I kept texting Sarah about is um, when Hamlet calls Polonius a fishmonger. and the difference in like the Kenneth Branagh versus the David Tennant one that it seems like David Tennant is much more like mocking Polonius um, than Kenneth Branagh has. Like I think Kenneth Branagh, he he seems to read Hamlet a little bit more like seriously almost, and David Tennant seems to have a little bit more like fun with it, almost, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's when I was texting Sarah, and I was like, oh, I really like how they did that. I still hate Polonius. <laughs> like, just by the way, I still don't like him. What that makes me think of is, um, I, I had an acting teacher tell me once, uh, nothing is more boring than a depressed Hamlet. 
And what he meant by that is not that Hamlet isn't suffering from depression, because he is, he's grieving, he's depressed, but that acting 101, like day one, what they teach you is that you cannot play an emotion. You can try, uh, but again, it's the, it goes back to that, like the general versus the specific. If you try to play sad or depressed or angry, then you what comes out is this kind of generalized wash of what we think that emotion is, you know, or what at least sort of the, what we think the outward expression of it is. And Lisa, I'm sure you could speak to this, but like, it's, it's so much more nuanced than that. It's so much more varied. I mean, we all contain multitudes and all of these emotions don't look like one thing 100% of the time, even in, in just one individual. You know, what I can play as an actor is, is an action, right? What am I trying to do? Um, and then in Shakespeare, you're given the gift to, of, like you said, right? It's doubling down on those words, you know? And especially in a play like this, like a lot of that work is really done for you. And if you can just, you know, because all of this stuff is, is psychosomatic, you know, and when I, when I breathe a certain way, and when I, um, when I speak a certain way, when I, when I have a speech that's full of a lot of consonants, they kind of make me screw up my face and, and, and kind of chew and spit on things. It puts my body in an emotional place that that is asking for. Um, but it's always going back to the, the, the specific and, and it can't ever be the general, you know? And so I, I, I personally really love the David Tennant. I agree completely because I oh, think yeah. Hamlet is funny. And I think that depression and grief and anger, they look like a lot of different things. They don't ever just look like totally. one thing. And even if they did, I wouldn't want to watch that for a three and a half hour play because that's not very interesting. Yeah, I, I see your point where it's just Hamlet's like, oh, I'm sad. The whole play, you're like, Oh, come on, Hamlet. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and, and you almost forget, like, there are more people in the play dealing with grief than just Hamlet. We don't really know anything about his father. We don't know how he behaved. We don't know how he was with certain people. You have Hamlet idealizing his father and then condemning his mother for not just, like, grieving his father for his whole life and and hamlet's mother we don't know what that relationship was we don't know how she's grieving we don't know how their marriage was even like hamlet's like obviously he was the best husband and father anybody could ever be when i thought about the relationship between hamlet and his mother hamlet and her mother because now we're kind of getting back to whereas before i could be like okay hamlet's kind of callous to his mother remarrying because it's like how dare you woman you should be grieving for the rest of your life whereas we would almost assume a certain amount of more empathy between a mother daughter but not if you're idealizing the person and I don't know I don't really have a question there that was just kind of a rant but for me looking at that relationship between Hamlet and Gertrude when we have such a limited view of Hamlet's father we only really know Hamlet's father from Hamlet's point of view yeah I, I think that's absolutely true but I, I would also put out there that um I don't know a woman who doesn't have at least a somewhat complicated relationship with her mother <laughs> and <Yeah>. often your <laughs> relationship with her father. Um, and that to me is, is really interesting, you know, to working with uh, Annie, who's going to play Gertrude and thinking about what that closet scene is. And, and th you know, I initially thought like, oh God, what am I going to do with all of these lines that can come off very sexist, very, you know, misogynistic, very like, what am I going to do with frailty? Thy name is woman. And then it occurred to me, like when you actually stop and think for a second, and honestly, when you start to look at some of the data, 
women can be harder on other women sometimes than men can be on women, you know, that we're actually the keepers of a lot of these societal pressures and expectations. I was just reading an article yesterday about um, how women are, are, are categorically uh, awful at self-promotion, and a lot of what perpetuates that is other women. We don't like it when women show off or, or are, are perceived as bragging about their accomplishments, you know, and that, that's just kind of one example. But yeah. it's interesting to me thinking about that. It's like, no, actually that makes total sense. I think often women hold other women to a higher standard than they, they might hold other men or than men might hold them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's, that's such an interesting idea with, especially with the frailty by name as woman, like a man would almost expect a woman to be frail, but another woman would be like, Oh no! Like you're a strong lady. Suck it up. Well, and I think I think that is a good point, and that's you know something like because also watching that you know and looking like I think at one point um, you know they talk about like unmanly grief, and so you know there's there's a lot that we can you know get into about you know the the gender norms of emotional expression. Um, that's a different soapbox, but uh, so. <laughs> I think that it is, you know, it is interesting because you're right that a lot of it does come from, you know, well, women will say like, oh, I'm not, I'm not like other women, right? You know? uh, or I don't have a lot of girlfriends, you know, because I don't get along with women, you know, I get along with men, you know, and so there's a lot that, you know, women can do as far as that and exactly that idea of, um, you know, if a woman acts a certain way that somehow that's like holding us all back or something you know it's like how oftentimes um you know the people who will berate a woman for deciding to stay home after she has a child is like oh like you know that you're somehow setting women back to the 50s or something like that i'm like i mean if that's your choice like do that like okay yeah. you know like there it, it's somehow like we can't let that go yes you mentioned early on sarah about you know, here, because Hamlet is being played by a woman, now we have a woman being usurped. And just a few years ago, I think even we here were seeing where there was this question of, can a woman run anything as you were working on your character? How did you approach that? Of Not only am I being usurped, but I'm being usurped possibly because I'm a woman. Right. Um, for me, I think it comes back to the idea of like, I can sort of intellectually appreciate that this is something that is a part of us doing the play in this way and that hopefully this is one of the things that like the audience leaves thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, if I'm looking at my job, which is just kind of to play the words in the circumstance, Hamlet, even as a man, really doesn't talk about it through that lens yeah. all that much. I mean, the only instance I can think of, and there might be more than this, but right at the end before the final duel in that conversation with Horatio, when he's sort of listing again, all of the reasons um, why it's justified that he finally go and kill Claudius. He says, he popped in between the election and my hopes. And that's the one kind of, that I recall, solid reference to this guy cut in line. He, he took something from me that was supposed to be mine, you know, uh, in addition yeah. to, uh, you, know, the, you know, the love of my mother and the memory of my father and, um, and my yeah. father himself, you know, he, he killed him. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's um, I think it's a part of it. I think it's an interesting lens with which we're able to sort of view the, the play and start to think about those things. But I don't, I didn't see that it was our intention to kind of make more of that than is already yeah. play to begin with. That makes sense. As you were, as you were talking early on about like, oh, Hamlet's father, um, 
you know, potentially treated a female Hamlet like a son, raised her like a son, and just what popped into my head was Henry VIII taught Mary and Elizabeth like a prince would have been taught because they were potentially going to rule. And so kind of looking at that being Hamlet's upbringing, whether, you know, man or woman. And um, what I always thought interesting was that Hamlet seemed to have a very intellectualized upbringing, whereas his father was like a warrior and like strong. And I always found it interesting that Hamlet wasn't so much like, oh, he was in the battlefield right next to his father, like fighting. He was at university and learning, and that was always kind of an interesting aspect of the character to me. Well, we have reactions to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, I mean, and, and all of these characters, they're, they're layers upon each other, right? And they kind of live in the same universe. So I think of Hamlet compared with Mac. I think of Hamlet compared with, you know, Prince Hal, and, and all of those things are kind of, it's all relationships, right? Right? and it's all politics. Yeah. I think what is interesting about Hamlet is that even though it is a political drama in a lot of ways, especially when you retain um, the, the Fortinbras plot, which we, we were doing, um, it is really a deeply personal drama. It's a, it's a family drama. And I think that's kind of what feeds into it. Like the political aspect is, a, is an element of it. It's a layer in it. Um, but it, these are really about like, you know, Hamlet and Gertrude, like having it out with each other in that closet scene. Yeah. Like, this is like some family stuff that's going down, yeah. personal, interpersonal. So what I was, what, what came to mind, because, you know, especially where I kind of like pop on, you know, every couple episodes is that um, we had done an episode diagnosing Henry VI. And we did talk about, um, we, we approached that one more historical than from the play. Um, because as we pointed out, Henry VI is not really the star of his own play. Um, <laughs> his own but, three plays. Yeah, his own three plays. Um, but like, there's clearly something going on there. And we did, you know, kind of talk about, you know, like the pressure of, you know, being the son of a warrior king, you know, and what that would have meant to him. Obviously in the case of Henry, you know, he was an infant when his father was killed, you know, so that's a very different dynamic. But what also kind of struck me is if we think about, you know, like Hamlet being the educated son of a warrior king and not being out on the battlefield, if he was the only or she was the only heir, like that would make sense. You don't want to risk that the heir to your kingdom is going to be killed, but if I shut them up in the university, they will not be. <laughs> You know, so you could also approach it from that, you know, like protective kind of thing. You know, we even, even today, you know, the heir and the spare. And it's not like we've got, you know, a rash of, you know, firstborn children being weirdly killed or die of influenza here and there, you know. So I think, you know, also thinking about that, and obviously we're wildly speculating at that point. We don't, you know, that's not given to us in the story, but... I think that's that, what this know. conversation is for. Wild speculation. Wild speculation. <laughs> like, it makes total sense, but you know, to your point, Sarah, about uh, Tudor England, I also don't think the warrior and the intellectual are mutually exclusive in this world. You no, know, if you Henry VIII, he was as revered for his sort of military and, and athletic prowess as he was for his musical ability and patronage of the arts and ability to write poetry and, and yeah. like were sort of all expected to, you know, not we all, right? So uh, royals, right? People who are kind of on their way to be to, to crowns and thrones um, were expected to be well-rounded in that way. 
a renaissance man. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's what I was like. One of the things I've always found interesting with, with Hamlet and like, and his father was like, no, you gotta kill Claudius. That has to happen. Go do that. Don't touch your mother. Like, yep. <laughs> that, like from the start, he was like, don't do it. And then Hamlet's like, I'm probably gonna do it anyway. And then his ghost father shows up again and is like, like, I told you. One question I had just kind of for my own curiosity, because I know that there have been different ways it's done. It's like, the ghost is like a figment of Hamlet's imagination or like real. And for me, whenever I read the text, I'm like, multiple people see the ghost. Like, it's, it's, it's real. Was ghost dad real? You know, it's interesting, and and, and uh, we, we also talked about this. So again, like going back to the perspective of, of the actor, right? So if I'm playing the character, it doesn't matter. It's a moot point, because I see the ghost <laughs> regardless. Yeah. It's actually like a specter or, you know, and it has its own sort of free will and ability to appear to some people and not to others. Or if I'm just certifiable and I'm hallucinating the whole thing, it's still yeah. real to me. It's real to me no matter what. Yeah. But again, like stepping out of playing the character and just thinking about it as somebody who is interested in examining this question, one thing we talked about that I do think is interesting is that multiple people see the ghost in act one. When you get to the ghost's second entrance in the closet scene, only Hamlet sees it. Yeah. Um, now, you know, I, you could say it's like, well, it's a ghost. It can show itself to whoever it wants. Or you could yeah. say Hamlet is hallucinating it, but maybe he wasn't the first time. Or you can say Gertrude sees the ghost and is pretending not to, <laughs> you know? And these are oh, all yeah. things to talk like, about and play with <laughs> and think about. And, and then ultimately, like, you know, you work your way through rehearsals and you want to be specific. You want to have the choice um, that you have in mind. But regardless, like, you open the show and your audience is your last scene partner and they're always gonna bring something to it that you didn't anticipate. And while you can, you can take steps towards telling a story clearly and saying, well, no, this is very deliberately the choice we're going to make about this. I always yeah. think productions are more interesting when they are, um, they blend kind of the specific and the ambiguous, you know, they, they're, they're not playing something general. They're not trying to play all the things. It's clear they've made a choice, but I like watching a Gertrude where maybe I can't really tell what decision that actress has make, made about yeah. her relationship with, you know, Ghost Hamlet or her relationship with Claudius or, um, you know, yeah. how involved or not she is in the murder. It's like, I, I like some ambiguity there. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Regardless, I think the actor has to make a choice, but you can't always control what an audience sees. What I find interesting with that question is because Ghost Dad is like, Claudius murdered me. Mm -hmm. You need to go avenge that. Like, if it's a, if it's in Hamlet's head, is he like just assuming Claudius murdered because he very specifically knows how Claudius murdered his father. You know, because he stages the play, and I'm like, he has some details if Ghostfather's not real. You know, and that's right. what was always kind of interesting to me. Circling back to grief a little bit, seeing a ghost of whoever died telling you, I was poisoned in my sleep. That has to mess with the grief process a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're also like, aside from the, you know, how would you kind of play that or, you know, see it in the play, um, it's also something that like we come up against of, you know, do we diagnose a psychotic condition or do we not? Um, and there are no hard and fast rules, you know, for as much as we try to like, impose the rules of science on what we do like we're talking about human behavior it's extraordinarily messy um 
And so you have people who, you know, have like essentially a spiritual belief system that, you know, maybe a dead loved one visited them in a dream and, you know, or they saw them in the room or things like that. Um, And so it's like, well, you know, was there something in their brain that was like producing that, you know, or is this a spiritual belief and things like that? Again, like I do think, you know, that kind of ghost dad is feeding Hamlet information he didn't otherwise have leads me more towards this is a spiritual experience, not this is a hallucination. If it was literally just ghost dad saying like, I was murdered, then I'm like, okay, that could be a grief manifestation because really at any extreme of emotion and behavior, uh, mostly emotion, like most of our diagnoses, we can tack on the specifier of with psychotic features. So you can have depression with psychotic features. You can have mania with psychotic features. So, you know, people can become so depressed that they hear voices, you know, potentially telling them to kill themselves and things like that. Um, You know, people can become so manic that they hear voices telling them that they're super great. So it, you know, and especially in grief, it's not uncommon to have like, you know, hallucinatory type experiences um, of that person. And then it, it becomes for me as a treatment provider, more about what is the function of that for that person? Are they super bothered by this? Are they comforted by it? You know, like how are they interpreting what's happening? Um, but I do like as a treatment provider, I do always approach it, you know, kind of like you were saying, Sarah, of like, this is real to Hamlet, you know, like whether it's objectively real, he is experiencing it. Um, you know, because psychotic experiences can create emotions that are real. Those emotions are really happening. And what I love about that is especially like playing the character in a modern context, like we lose a little bit of um, what would make sense to an Elizabethan audience you know, for, for the reasons for Hamlet's delay, right? So why he can't sort of fulfill immediately this path of the, the avenging hero. Um, and, and he comes up with this idea of the sphere that I've seen may be a devil and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, right? To, for, which to an Elizabethan audience is like, yeah, totally. Like devils and demons are real things and they could totally show up and pretend to be your dad and lead you down the path to hell. Um, yeah. for, I mean, it happened to me last Tuesday, Tuesday like whatever. <laughs> but that idea of a modern Hamlet being aware of like, maybe I'm just having a psychotic episode. Maybe I shouldn't trust myself and go like wielding my rapier in front of my uncle right now until I've got double confirmation that this is in fact true. That is a nice kind of thing. That's how that like converts that moment for me for a, a modern Hamlet. I do always love that Hamlet's like, I gotta fact check this ghost, man. <laughs> I gotta which, which makes total sense to me. It's one thing that always sort of bugged me that people get annoyed with Hamlet for delaying. It's like, really? Like you you yeah. want him to just like take the hallucination and its word and go and stab a dude? Like we don't Yeah, like he's just like, well, ghost dad told me to stab a stab stab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, not only that, but it's like, I want everyone to know what Claudius did. Like, I want everyone to know why I just killed Claudius, not just like, I saw a ghost and a damn dance. Yeah. Like, you're pro- well, people would probably be like, Hamlet, mm. Yeah, and actually I love that you say that, right? So we're so then, so yes, so I think if, if Hamlet had managed to kill Claudius, like behind the, if, if, if it was actually Claudius behind the heiress in the closet and he had done it, I think that would absolutely be true. 
But I think post-Pirate Adventure and like Hamlet coming back as Zen Hamlet, what's really interesting to me is that when he finally does it in the end, we don't really hear about Dad. I mean, yeah. for, for any, but for the courtiers who were watching this, it could just yeah. as easily be, I'm avenging my mother who has just died and Laertes yeah. has just said the king is to blame and everybody's calling treason, treason and Hamlet, you know, Hamlet stabs his uncle. Yeah. But he never brings back like the, I, you know, you kill my father, prepare to die kind of thing <laughs> in the end because it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter anymore. You know, he's finally accepted that he, he really has no will, and if this thing is meant to happen, then fate is gonna put the thing in his hand and give him the opportunity to do it, and that's exactly what fate does. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I, I never thought of that. It's like, at the end, he's like, it's not about my dad anymore, bro. Oh, yeah, he just comes back, and he's like, this, like, okay, I now accept anything. I accept my own death, I accept my, my execution of this task if I do it, but I'm kind of good either way. Yeah, like, we'll see what happens. What's wrong with it? And what I've always found interesting with Hamlet and why, you know, these conversations are always so fascinating around Hamlet is that he is such a deep character. But one thing that has always stuck to me is in high school when I was first learning Hamlet and we watched the Kenneth Branagh version and Hamlet decides not to kill Claudius because he is in prayer. And if he kills Claudius in prayer, Claudius will be forgiven and go to heaven, and that's not okay. I just, like, my teacher, we were talking about it, and I just remember being like, Hamlet's really pissed at this dude. Like, this anger has seeped deep into Hamlet, because, like, if you're just kind of surface angry, you're just gonna be like, I don't care, you're dead. But he's like, no, I want him to suffer for eternity. Yeah, also, like, I like when that I said surface that, like, my mad was, is killing him. <laughs> like. Yeah. Killing him is surface mad. Right. <laughs> if I'm surface well, mad, like, I don't, like, I'm not killing people. That's, like, a little deeper than surface mad, okay. but that's just surface me. Surface mad is telling him off. Nestler is killing him. Deeper is, like, you suffer for eternity, sir. And, and I just remember saying that, like, Hamlet's really angry. And my teacher looking at me, like, because I was like, I probably wouldn't have waited. I just would have been like, damn. <laughs> my teacher looked at me like I was weird. But, uh, to be fair, I was. Hamlet has internalized this. And that, to me, speaks to, this is beyond just, like, you killed my father. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I actually see it slightly differently. I feel like um, Claudius is, is a piece of the puzzle, but I feel like Hamlet, pre-Ghost, all of his fury is targeted at his mom. Um, that, that is the betrayal, you know, and, and you can sort of build your own story about what is the relationship between Hamlet and his uncle, you know, before the show, the, the play starts. And, and that can be, but if you just look at what he says, you know, the two, two solid yeah. flesh and all of that, man, he is furious with her, that hers is yeah. the key betrayal, but it really doesn't have all that much to do with him. I mean, there's, that's not entirely true, right? So he, he he does have this underlying sense, right? Something is wrong. Um, you know, he, he says that, oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle, right? And I don't think it's that he's he's assumed that his uncle has has murdered his father, but it's like something's not right about this. But his, his immediate theory before he gets this knowledge of the of the murder from the ghost is really about like how could she do that to me how could she do that to the memory of her i think by the end it's almost like he he has like target fixation with claudius like he hasn't you're right it like it's not about his dad anymore but it's just like this you know for whatever like killing claudius has just become this this fixation point 
you know, I I have to survive the pirate adventure so that I can come back to Denmark because I've still got to kill Claudius. And you can become so fixated on something you kind of lose sight of like why. Um, you know, it's just like I've got to kill Claudius and it just becomes all about I've got to kill Claudius and it's not even about Ghost Dad and you know all of that anymore it's like yeah. it's just become fixated on that point point. well and I think too before the end you know Hamlet has that scene in the in the bedroom with his mother where he almost like makes up with his mom like he's almost like mom how could you and she's like oh you're right how could I you know and and that moment when he just like just don't sleep with Claudius again and you're good. It's like, oh, okay, Hamlet, I, I won't sleep with my husband. It's fine. His fury is absolutely at his mother, but then at some point his mother acknowledges her role and his anger, and then he's like, okay, sorry for killing Polonius in your bedroom. <laughs> I'm gonna go murder Claudius now. It's fine. <laughs> Hi, Mom. You know, I always loved and, and it, the David Cutter version when he like picks up Polonius and like, just like, hey, and like walks away and you're just like yeah well i mean i think i think that's a huge turning point for hamlet because as far as he's concerned until the second that he pulls that heiress back and sees that it's polonius and not hamlet he's done the thing so after that point any doubts that he had previously had about can i simply perform the act of killing another human well i've done that yeah. you know and and i did it um thinking that I was killing this person. So I now know that I am capable of doing it, right? Which gives yeah. him then a new freedom as the, that scene he has with Claudius right before he goes off on the pirate adventure. You know, I mean, that's his, he's <laughs> he's yeah. pretty open and, um, you know, no holds barred in that. He just, uh, you know, has yeah. no more cares to give, as you say. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think, I think what's interesting with that is it's almost like for Hamlet, the resolution was with his mother. And once that was resolved, she was like, okay, we're just gonna let the chips fall where they may, and hopefully I kill Claudius in the process. You know, like, you know, and surviving the pirate venture was about getting back to kill yeah. Claudius. But like, you know, by the time he gets back, he's just like, whatever, I don't care. And I think one part of that is like, his big emotional issue has been resolved. He was really, really mad at his mom and she was like, I, I understand why you're mad. That's fair. And he was like, oh, okay then. I'm going to go kill your Plenation. husband now. <laughs> yeah, that is why therapy works. But then, <laughs> right behind, as Hamlet comes back from his pirate adventure, he then starts on a new grief train. Because, like, yes, he was a total jerk to Ophelia. And that's a whole other thing, but like, he still is grieving her death. Someone else I really cared about has been lost in this process. And now I'm just like, I don't care anymore. Kill me, kill everybody, except Horatio, because he has to tell the story. You know, but it's just interesting to me watching that like new layer of grief come in and then where he kind of jumps into like, I, I no longer care. Well, I think especially like when we talk about compounding, you know, traumas and compounding tragedies that, you know, there's for some, you know, cert, like, and it's, there's again, no like scientific algorithm to this is very different for different people, but you can have this, you know, because I've been through this worst trauma, this kind of secondary trauma is not as bad. 
but you can also have it the other way that kind of that first trauma, you know, like weakens it. And so the second one is, you know, like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that's why sometimes you see people who it's like, well, you know, I survived childhood abuse. So when I was assaulted as an adult, that wasn't as bad. But then you have it the other way where, you know, like I survived the childhood abuse, but the adult is what, you know, knocked me off essentially. I'm going to steal that, Lisa. That that helps me with that <laughs> graveyard scene. Actually, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, seriously, you know, especially when I think about somebody who intellectualizes to the extent that Hamlet intellectualizes, you know, and uh, often with that, you know, people who who rely on their, you know, mental capacity, uh, I, you know, I know this about myself, can have uh, difficulty reconciling when their emotion starts to overcome their ability to intellectualize what they're dealing with. Well, and I guess for me, um, your emotions versus intellectualizing, like, it's almost like in order to continue intellectualizing, Hamlet has to shut his emotions down post Ophelia's death. For me to continue to my target, to my I'm gonna kill Claudius, I have to just shut it down. I actually, like, I literally just had this conversation with a client today because he's like, so this is a person who um, survived the, the lot, the very tragic um, and very traumatic loss of someone uh, very close to him. And so, you know, we're about a year out from it now. And so he's like, I either feel everything or nothing, you know, like it's either overwhelming or I'm feeling nothing. And I'm like, well, what our brain does to protect us is our emotions are so overwhelming. It shuts that down, you know, but there comes a point where there's so much water behind a really poorly built dam that it all floods out and then we build the dam back up and then we flood again. That's also something, you know, looking at that, you know, with like Hamlet, like I said, as someone who intellectualizes it, that he does disconnect from the emotion because it's so overwhelming, but you can only do that for so long, you know, because it will pop out usually in ways you don't like. <laughs> Yeah. What this has me thinking about is like, what is actually the character's state of mind in that scene with Horatio prior to the duel? And I, I honestly don't know the answer to this question. I'd be curious, you know, to, to get into rehearsals and to see what it actually is. Because I think I'd been thinking of it as there's a difference between like repression and apathy and like, no, I've actually like worked through this and I now accept my fate. Like I, I, I feel balanced. I feel at peace with the world, even though, you know, the world will continue to act on me and, and, and I on it. And I'm not sure which of those two things he is uh, in that moment. Yeah, really he might he might not be sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I have to wonder too, with his feelings over Ophelia, does guilt play a role in it? Because he was a total jerk to her. Yeah, I mean, yes. I think the answer to that is, is, is <laughs> not to just say nothing of the fact that he's the instrument of her father's death, <laughs> that he's essentially oh, yeah, put her in the exact same situation <laughs> that he is in, only now he is the instrument of causing that pain. So yeah, I mean, I think yeah. for sure that's part of that. Absolutely. Well, and also when we're talking about like guilt and grief, those things are so intertwined. The number of people who like after someone dies and it's like the last thing I said to them, you know, I was mad at them and they have this like overwhelming guilt that that caused them to die or, you know, something like that. And like this kind of weird magical thinking that we can get. And especially because Hamlet did have like a little bit more of an active role in Ophelia's downfall. Like he wasn't asked to her and, you know, he did kill her dad. The, the guilt of that and that's something even people struggling with like depression you do things when you're in the middle of a mood episode that 
essentially often make you a terrible friend. Then you have to go on the apology tour when you come out of that. <laughs> in grief, you know, it's like I was in this state and, you know, maybe I said things that I wish I hadn't said or, you know, that kind of thing. And the guilt of that, but now multiplied by a bajillion because it's not just that, like, I said rude things, like I killed your dad. This yeah. is, we've, yeah. we've raised the stakes. <laughs> And, that, and that's exactly what happens, you know, in that conversation with Horatio, you know, he, uh, Hamlet says, you know, I am, I'm very sorry that to Laertes, I, I, I lost myself. That, and, and I don't, I think that's important because I don't think Hamlet lies to Horatio. I think Horatio is the one person in the play that Hamlet trusts from top to toe. You know, he doesn't BS. He, he is actually completely honest with. And thinking about that grief thing, I love what you said about we sort of manufacture that. I, I, that going back even to the very beginning, part of what hits Hamlet about his father's death in the beginning is that he's not there, right? He's away at school in Wittenberg and he hears that this happens. Um, and it's making me, you know, especially now, it's making me think of like the day-to-day -day world that we're living in and the fact that so many people are losing loved ones and they're not able to be with their loved ones in their last moments, you know? Right. That, that they're having to reckon with the idea that these people are dying alone and the, the horror of that. I mean, that would send me off and I'm a pretty well-balanced yeah. individual. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and, and I think what's interesting is when we look at Hamlet and Ophelia's relationship in terms of Hamlet grieving, like, I've always found it interesting that he like ran to Ophelia after seeing the ghost and was sad and having this emotional moment with her. And then, like, a day or two later, is like, go away. He intentionally pushing Ophelia away, you know, yeah. like, just be like, go away. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And I know a lot of people trace it back to that moment where in the scene um, where he's talking to Ophelia and Claudius and Claudius are watching, that moment where he's like, who else is here or something like that. Like, he, he becomes aware that Ophelia has lied to him. And he's like, okay, done with you, get me to another race. And I just always found that extremely interesting. Yeah, but again, it's like, I think there are there are multiple layers to that, right? And it goes back to the idea, like, we contain multitudes. We can feel more than one thing at once. You know, I, I think that um, for me, and she kind of pushes him away uh, as well on the, on the instruction of her father, but to me, that moment of like, I think he does. I think he does go in there in that scene that she describes that we never see. We only see her tell yeah. the story of it to Polonius and want to unburden, you know, all of these things and, and doesn't in an effort to to protect her and to kind of keep her whole and keep her pure. And then you get to the nunnery scene and I think it's absolutely both. You know, it's like, get thee to a nunnery, Hamlet says multiple times. It's a big repetition in the scene. And I think yeah. it is mingling. It's like, yes, he's furious with her. And he's also like, all of his fury with his mom and, and women and people and anyone associated with this court and this world is all packed into her and he's taking it out on her. But at the same time, there's that instinct to protect. You know, I think the the un, the underlayer of get thee to a nunnery is get the hell out of Denmark. <laughs> like get yourself away from this court and yeah. these people because I care about you and I want you gone because of that. You know, and I think it's both of those things. Yeah. I think you 
furious with someone and still have the instinct to protect them. That's I very think, interesting. I kind of never thought of that scene as like him protective. Yeah, and I, I think it's yeah. both. Again, I think it's both. Absolutely. I really do. Because again, you know, into the wild speculation realm, I think that there's a couple things that can be playing into that. I think that one, if Hamlet went to Ophelia in that scene that we never see and unburdened himself, you know, that is something that occurs rather early on. So if we kind of look at, you know, Hamlet's arc into, you know, a deeper state of grief, mental illness, you know, what have you, that that to him may have been like, he showed too much. He allowed himself to be too vulnerable. And now he regrets it. And he sees Ophelia as the reminder of that weakness. Because actually, this is something that we see with clients is that sometimes right after, you know, I have a really good session where like we make a breakthrough and they're like telling me something they've never told somebody and then they skip. You know, and it's because they're embarrassed that they've told that they, you know, let themselves down that they let me in. They don't want to see me because I represent that weakness to them, you know, so seeing that, you know, played within Ophelia. So that could be happening. And then if we add in the idea that right after Ophelia describes that Polonius tells her, you know, to brush off Hamlet. So if that happened, we also could have the potential where Hamlet, you know, bared his soul to Ophelia and then she like backs off and is very yeah. dismissive. And that's hurtful. You know, if you yeah. allow yourself to be vulnerable like that to somebody and then they're like, I don't want to see you anymore. Hamlet could even see that as another betrayal on top of, you know, mom and dad and Claudius and everybody else. <laughs> so Lisa, I'm going to need to, you know, whenever we restart this, this play again, I'm just going to need you to like, come sit next to me. <laughs> so this is why you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. I will do that. I just, I, I picture you as like Hamlet, like laying on the couch. Like I just, I need to figure out what I'm feeling right now. Hamlet, I feel like could have done well with some talk therapy. <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> It's a whole YouTube um, series. Like, it's going to be Lisa, and we're going to feature different Shakespearean characters <laughs> in the therapy session. Yes, we've been, we have a couple of episodes. So, like I said, we did Henry the Sixth of Melee, so that was more from like a historical perspective. But then we also did an episode with Portia, Brutus's wife, from Julia Caesar, because I was like, she's not in it much, but there's a lot there. <laughs> the um, woman swallows coals to commit suicide. Something's exactly. Like, right. Like, right. So yeah, we this is an ongoing series. We just we had already planned to talk about like Hamlet because like Hamlet's an episode of himself, and we'll, we'll have to do a future episode on Ophelia because she's a whole other yeah, she's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> yeah, I guess one other random question I did have just because like I was I I have a lot of random questions about like the details of this production because I was so interested in seeing it and I'm like really hoping someday in the future it gets to come about. Was Ophelia still going to be a woman? Uh, she was, yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What about Horatio? Uh, Horatio was a man. So I can tell you at least how it was originally cast. And, and I think the intention is, you know, um, if and when we're able to bring it back, is to kind of retain as much of the original cast and, and kind of yeah. conception as possible. Um, that might not be entirely possible, but, but we'll see. But originally, um, so Hamlet's a woman, Ophelia's a woman, Horatio's a man, uh, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are both women, um, Osric's a woman, most actually, uh, almost the entirety of the player company is women, including the player king. Uh, the player queen is a man. Um, yeah, which is kind of fun. Uh, Fortinbras is a woman, which I think is really interesting. Uh, especially when you think about it as a yeah. kind of a real 
to Hamlet, uh, but Laertes is still a man, uh, Ham or, or Claudius and Gertrude are, are gender as written. Um, and and the, the director, at least at the, um, you know, the outset was everybody is playing the gender that they are. Uh, so if you're a man, yeah. you're playing the character as a man. If you're a woman, you're playing the character as a woman. If you're non-binary, you're playing the character non-binary. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and lots of things to talk about there. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, multiple layers, right? So the as cast, the, yeah. uh, the entire Polonius family is African-American, which is another kind of interesting oh, cool. uh, dynamic that, that lends itself to. And it's neat to think about that, you know, and, and sort of how, how our world has changed and not changed. Um, so the company's very first Hamlet, actually, back in 1997, uh, was played by a woman, uh, Marnie Penning. She was one oh, of wow. Organization, and she played it um, as a woman, you know, as as the Lady Hamlet. And by pure dumb luck, so we've got this um, kind of uh, uh, de facto library uh, at uh, at the company, which is comprised of like hand-me-downs and old copies of scripts, and there's just a whole bunch of different stuff in there, books on Shakespeare. And a few months ago, just needing like, okay, I just need like a basic copy of the script that I can start paging through. I went and grabbed one, actually, I have it. Um, it's one of the Ardens from a couple of series yeah. ago. And by pure dumb luck, it's actually the copy that the director of that Hamlet used. And so oh, that's cool. it highlighted our every single pronoun or lord and lady that refers to Hamlet as a man. Um, and it just kind of noted uh, to figure out like, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? And what's interesting is question marks by lines like, you know, when Gertrude is at the grave of Ophelia and she says, you know, I hope that wouldst have been my Hamlet's wife. In this script that the director was working on in 1997, there's a big question mark behind that. It's like, would a queen actually say that? Is this something that we should cut? Is this something that they, you know, would feel? And now it feels like, no, I totally buy that Gertrude would go, yep, I fully accept that, you know, I have a yeah. daughter who married another woman. <laughs> it's, there's something kind of amazing about that. That is, that is really cool. That's really cool to think back on, even in just a short period of time, yeah. relatively like how far we've kind of moved and then how far we haven't because the and then also not. <laughs> yeah. yeah one thing i've always really appreciated about the Cincinnati shakespeare company is the diversity of casting first that comes to mind is like Macbeth. you know bankwell had a daughter and duncan had a daughter and a son and the daughter was the next in line you know that was really cool because like no big thing was made of it. It wasn't like, look, we cast a woman! Like, but it was just really interesting to have that and be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, she's the firstborn. She would have been the heir. That was really I'm, cool. I'm glad you like that and, and that you appreciate it. But, you know, going back to that idea of, you know, how far we've come and you know, that how far we still have to go, there are folks who absolutely love that we do that, but we also get folks that, that don't. And they question oh, yeah. it. They go, I don't understand this. Sure. Or, you know, a woman in, you know, 1195 Scotland or whenever the heck it's supposed to be originally said, you know, would never have ascended. It's like, well, one, no, no, that's not actually true. But <laughs> also, oh, yeah. it's like, well, I feel like you're showing me something about you <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, not, well, exactly. And I, and I think I think a lot of people, too, with Shakespeare have kind of this, like, Shakespeare purity where it's like, it should be performed as intended. And we're like, yeah. What does that even mean? <laughs> well, exactly. What does that even mean? But too, like, that's so limiting to what it is and what it could be. Yeah. You know, because part of what, like, you know, Shakespeare does get down to this very human element. And by limiting it to his potential Elizabethan mindset, 
Mm-hmm. It's so limiting and limit and and like there's so many different facets of every character that could be expanded by having it portrayed by a different gender, a different race, or just in a different setting. Yep. There's been a lot recently that I've been I've been reading up on kind of the Shakespeare purist vote versus like people the woke. Sarah, I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I, I snooped on your website a little bit before we recorded this, and I, uh, I so appreciate it. <laughs> if I'm going to get on a soapbox about anything, it's it's people being purists about, about Shakespeare. It's just, yeah. I mean, to me, it's so, it's so contrary. Like, one, okay, you, you, you're you never going to be able to, to argue with me that there is a, a, a an intent behind the playwright, um, because oh, yeah. we don't have for sure what the playwright wrote down. Exactly. We don't have it. We have a composite of things that were written by him and by actors and by, you know, I mean, all of this, you know, there's different versions. And so there is no Shakespeare yeah. to go back to. There is Shakespeare's. And so you're always yeah. making choices. You're always making decisions. Um, and, and then again, like you said, I mean, you know, when I think about the spirit in which these plays were written, where it was entertainment for the masses, where is, you know, there is the highest and most profound poetry and there is the lowest, most base, like penis joke. I mean, just everywhere and and everything in between. Like, you want to talk about the sacred and the profane being side by side and, you know, the queen and the groundling being in the same theater. Like that's, that's what these were for. And you know, the idea of uh, the the late Fred Adams, who used to run uh, Utah Shakespeare Company, he talked a little bit about when he first started, um, yeah, uh, you know, producing at, at Utah Shakes, you know, he was, he was in front of audiences who all they wanted was to see beautiful words beautifully gowned. And I, I get that. That's nice to look at. And I understand that impulse, and I understand there are people who, who still want that. And you know, at the Shakespeare Company, we, we do our best to occasionally give them that. You know, I, there's yeah. nothing wrong uh, in my mind yeah. with a, a, a production that is costumed in Elizabethan fashion or a set that looks oh, like yeah. I think that's great. And I think that you can still get modern uh, and contemporary resonance and relevance out of the play seeing it like that. But I would never ever say that you couldn't get it from playing a little fast and loose with your setting or doing something interesting with gender or with race. Um, I think that that's only what keeps these plays alive and relevant. I think to to relegate them to museum pieces is to kill them in in the long run. Absolutely. And and what I always find interesting is that a lot of the Shakespeare purists are the same people that like if the question comes up like was Shakespeare anti-Semitic or racist or sexist and they're like no of course not. I was like yes of course he was in a winter beach in England. Like (laughs) of course he was. Like I'm sorry. Yes. And, And that's okay. Like that doesn't, to me, it doesn't have to take away from the text. And, and, and to your point, like, what am I, I have a filmed copy of Twelfth Night done at the Globe with an all-male cast in Elizabethan costume. Yeah. Because it's cool to see it, to be like, oh, that's yeah. how it would have been. But it's equally as interesting to see Hamlet played by a woman in a contemporary setting, you know, and, and everything in between. Yeah. David Tennant in a muscle shirt. Yes. He's got that, honest, that like, red t-shirt. At, you know, if he's speaking poetry or not. But um, yeah. But anyway, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you, ladies, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thus ends another episode of Breaking Bard. Please join us next time when we discuss what Henry V was really like. 
If you want to make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes, make sure to hit subscribe. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends. For more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. You should also check out my new YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ripegoodscholar, where I just launched my first series on a Midsummer Night's Dream. And if you're in the Cincinnati area, please make sure to put Hamlet on your to-do list for August. See you next time, and remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art.